pediatric speech language pathologist and welcome to teach me to talk the podcast as you can see I'm not in the back room anymore things are moving forward in our new mission-based clinic here in central Kentucky and I could not be more excited I'm actually in a corner of our front office here and I just love this color it's so peaceful and I, again I'm just thrilled to be uh, moving on with our new plan so today's podcast, let me say one thing before we get going with content. I still am getting emails from people who are longtime podcast listeners, listeners since we've done this show since 2008, and they're saying, Laura, do I have to watch the video to get credit, uh, file CE credit? Absolutely not. The content's exactly the same. The only difference with the podcast is that now we offer a video version here on YouTube, and I love it because I've gotten to hear from parents all over the world who have discovered uh, Teach Me to Talk and our work through YouTube. So I'm so grateful for that opportunity. So if that's you and you're a new watcher or listener, thank you so much for that. But if you've been with me for 10 years or five years or however long you've been listening to the show, you can still get CE credit for this if you're a therapist by just going to teachmetotalk.com uh, it's the, the main gig there on the homepage with ASHA CEUs. And even if you're not a speech pathologist and don't need ASHA or the American Speech and Hearing Association uh, credit for this course, you can still get a certificate of completion to file for your licensure or uh, what credentialing, whatever your state happens to require that you do. So please take advantage of that opportunity. Again, I'm so excited that we can bring to you quality easy to access continuing education information for just five dollars that's unheard of so i'm again so so grateful for that opportunity all right so today we're going to be talking about something that is so near and dear to my heart and it's how to jump start expressive language in late talking toddlers and so let me just say the method that we are going to talk about today is exactly what i would use if you were coming here to see me <laughs> in our clinic or if i've seen you for the last oh 25 years. This is what has evolved for me over my career. And let me just say too, that if there are other developmental red flags and you can get a, a good idea of what those are just with this little list, like decreased interest in social interaction, that's a huge developmental red flag. It almost always points to autism in toddlers. Sometimes it's just a, a more significant sensory processing difference, but anytime there's decreased social interaction. We've got to tackle that problem first before we begin to work on expressive language. If a child has an increased activity level that I just mentioned, if he is so busy, if he is constantly on the go, 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 and you can't get him to settle down, this method may not work yet either. You're gonna to have to work on that piece first to get him regulated and calm and really, really ready to listen and to learn. Um, if a kid won't play with toys, that's something that I also would address before I begin to use this method. Although the first level, the first step in this process will get him started, but at the same time, we wanna make sure children have a strong foundation for learning language before we start these techniques. And the last red flag here would be uh, limited receptive language skills. And how do we judge that? We can't just say, oh, he understands everything. I mean, that is such a common thing that parents say to us as early intervention professionals when we first meet them. You know, we'll say, how does he process language or how does he understand language? And they'll say, oh, he understands everything. But then when we get down to the uh, uh, really fundamental questions like, does he follow directions? And they say, uh, no. Does he respond to his name? They may say sometimes. Guys, those are indications that there's a pretty significant receptive language problem going on. And again, children have to understand words before they use those words to communicate. So with those little red flags, we have to address those pieces first. Now I've done a couple of shows about that, and if you're new to the podcast and haven't listened or watched those shows, go back and watch show number 370 because it really goes through that list of red flags for communication delays in toddlers. And if a child has two or three or four of those, 
red flags, it's really, really important that you address those pieces first. And that's often why expressive language strategies like the ones that we're going to talk about today don't work. It's because we as the adults are using these techniques out of order. You know, when we are teaching something to children like math, we don't start at the beginning. We don't start with calculus. We don't start with algebra. We start with the basics. We start with addition and subtraction. And actually before that, we even start with things like number identification and counting. Language is the same way. There's a hierarchy of development that we must follow. And so when our techniques aren't working as therapists or as parents, we need to always go back and analyze what are we doing wrong? What could we tweak that might make a difference for this child? It's so easy to just blame a delay on a, a diagnosis. And I'm not saying that that's not the reason that there's a delay. Of course there is. But sometimes when a child isn't making improvements, it's because we have not been careful enough with selecting our strategies. And we've jumped in at a level that's just too high and too hard for a toddler to make progress. So that's what we're going to be talking about today is how we can move a nonverbal child who has has his other areas of language development coming in. We already talked about that. He's already got some pretty good, pretty decent social interaction. His cognitive skills are moving along and we judge that best through play. He understands how to play with toys. He's interested in toys. Then we look at his receptive language. He's understanding uh, and following directions so words are meaningful to him. He responds to his name. When all those things are present, then we can look at teaching imitation. Now, imitation is how all of us learn anything, everything really. Even as an adult, you probably are still learning through imitation. Now, you may read some things on the internet, which is one of my favorite ways to get and give information, or you may uh, you, you may have, have be the kind of person that you have to do something to really learn something, but for lots of us, watching, watching somebody else do something is how we learn. That's why YouTube's so popular. You want to learn how to make a new recipe? Your first thing to do may be going to YouTube. For some of you, you wanted to learn how to help your child learn how to talk. You wanted different methods, and so you went to YouTube. You wanted to watch somebody do it. And that's how toddlers learn, again, to talk. But it doesn't start with words. And so many times that's a, a big, big, big mistake that we make as parents or as therapists. When there's an expressive language delay, we jump straight into words and think, well, I'm just going to teach this kid how to say words and this is all going to get taken care of really quickly. It doesn't always work that way, does it? Yeah, so we have to really look at how language develops and then really look at how children primarily learn language, which is through imitating, and we can't start at that word level. There are actually eight levels of imitation that I introduced. Let me go ahead and tell you about this great resource for you. It's uh, my therapy manual, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. I also have a full-length uh, continuing education course that's six hours on DVD for therapists if you're interested in that. There are actually eight levels of imitation that we work through with children who were late talkers. And again, the first one isn't with words. Words, we don't get to words until level seven. We actually start way back at teaching a child to imitate actions with objects. Now, why do we start there? Because this is based on the hierarchy that we've learned from typical development. And babies start to learn how to imitate actions with objects. So think back. And this will be particularly true for you if you do have a child who is just a late talker, meaning that everything else developmentally is coming along, but he just has a lag in expressive language development. Think back to when he was an infant, and actually I live next door to the, this wonderful family who's just had a set of twins. And I was thinking about this when I saw them last night out in the front yard with how quickly children began to imitate. I noticed with my facial expressions when I was, you know, widening my eyes, my crazy wide eyes, they were trying to do that too. And then looking at me, you know, smiling, just really, really trying to do that. And I, I another thing that I know that babies uh, do at this point too is they really do start to imitate some really basic things. They start to put their hands on the bottle. They start to when they're manipulating toys and again this process of imitating um, 
actions with objects really takes off as a child gets closer and closer to that first birthday. So nine or 10 months, they're really starting to learn how to imitate actions with objects. And so this is where we start when we are looking at why a child, a toddler, has an expressive language delay. We go back to that beginning with imitation so that we can start to assess that. Now you can't, with actions with objects, it's most closely monitored or observed in play, but you can't really just look at a child and how he's playing and determine his ability to imitate because here's the kicker. You have to get them in the, the routine or you have to get them in the, uh, catch them to see if you do something, they do something. You do something, they do something. If you're just looking at a child in isolation, meaning that you're not playing with him, you're just observing him, you might give him credit for imitating things that he's not really imitating yet. He is probably imitating it in the sense that he's seen someone do it, and that is delayed imitation, and that's how we learn too. But to really be an effective language learner, we have to get that imitation process moving very, very quickly. And so when we do this back at level one with imitating actions with objects, we want to do an action with a toy or some other object that we might use in an everyday routine. And then we want to see a child imitate uh, the same action that, that we've done. So let, let me just ask you, let's just do a little pop quiz here. And we, we want to start with expected actions. And so things that a child would uh, know especially when his cognitive skills are moving along, what we would do with that action. So let's think about this. If, you, if I gave you a car and I said, okay, I want you to sit down right here with me and I want you to play with your child or with a child and let's see how he imitates you. What are some things that you would do with that car to get him to imitate? Well, you would probably roll it, right? You might crash it into another car. Uh, you, you might just, uh, again, think of any kind of action that you would do with that car to get that child to imitate. Let's, let me give you another example. What if I gave you, if you were playing with a baby doll and I gave you a hat, what would you do with the hat and the doll? You would put the hat on the doll's head, right? So think about that kind of thing. If you had a drum and a drumstick, what would you do? You would beat the drum. So think about the kinds of things that would be expected actions, and that's where we begin with toddlers. We see how well they will imitate or copy us directly as we play with them, as we're down on the floor with them and interacting with them. And moms, you can do this at home all day long. When you're in the kitchen, you can knock on a cabinet door and see if a child will imitate that. You, if you have a bowl, you can turn that bowl upside down and see if the child will turn his bowl upside down. Again, you can, you can, you can move to unexpected actions as well. You can put the bowl on top of your head uh, back to the hat example with the baby doll, you could put the hat on your knee. You could see, can he move from imitating expected actions, which sometimes parents say to me, hmm, Laura, you know, I think he might have done that anyway. I'm not going to give him credit for imitation yet because I'm not sure. I think he was on the verge of that being his own original idea. And even if I did it, I'm still not sure that he's imitating. I love it when a parent catches that because it really, really shows me that they're understanding that imitation is what we're looking for here. And that's the skill that, that's really our goal, where we're directed with that. So we move, we start with those simple actions with objects that are very familiar, and then we move to unexpected actions with objects so that we can really verify that a child is uh, moving along with that and is really doing what we do. Because again, that's what we're trying to get to. That's where we're building up to. All right, once a child can do that, can imitate actions with the objects, then we bump it up a little bit. We see how he can imitate actions with his own little body. Now, let me just say, some experts kind of differ in this hierarchy. They actually put this step first, or they kind of join this. They say, imitate gross motor actions. And so they might use objects, or they may just kind of lump this all together and say, imitate, imitate any kind of action with the body's, uh, child's body. So that would mean that if you clap, he claps. If you raise your arms and wave, he raises his arms and wave. If you stomp, he stomps. Those kinds of things, those kind of gross motor or big body actions. Now, let me just say, if you're a therapist, you know, I'm talking to you right now and you're hearing all this, and hopefully this is not the first time <laughs> that you've considered this imitation hierarchy. But a lot of times we as therapists don't always do what we know 
or somehow we just we've got this kind of academic side of us here and we know all this stuff that we learned in grad school but it doesn't always make it into our everyday practice so how I'm talking to you right now and, and parents who are watching on YouTube or listening uh, through iTunes these are the same kinds of conversations that you should be having with parents this is the same kind of script I mean just say what I've said <laughs> copy it you imitate <laughs> as you're talking to parents this is how we teach them about imitation and this is also how we help a parent walk through and we have to get them to understand not to be so hyper focused on words when a child isn't imitating easier earlier actions or easier earlier levels of imitation so as I'm talking with you through this whole process and you're a therapist maybe you're a new therapist and you're going yada 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 okay whatever I know all that teach me how to get to words we're not there yet and that's the whole purpose of this entire hour-long course here is to teach you how to walk through this continuum and then for you to be able to teach a parent how to walk through this continuum as well. So we're back here at level two. We're back here at imitating big body movements or gross motor actions. When a child can do that, when he can march, as I, if I start to play with him and we do a little song about marching and I'm marching across the room and then he copies me and marches across the room, if he can do that and clap and kick, raise his hands, like I said, pat his belly, do a lot of those little uh, copycat games with me, then we bump it up a little bit more. And then we start to make those actions look more like gestures. So what are some gestures that a child might be able to copy? Well, how about waving? We've already talked about clapping, which I think is kind of a hybrid there between a big gross motor action and then a communicative gesture. Things like blowing a kiss, even things like giving five. Those are very early gestures that children also learn as they begin to communicate. Now, gestures are super important. They're super important predictor of language development. And actually, how a child is imitating gestures um, at 18 months and imitating actions at 18 months, even things like housework activities are a big predictor for how he will be talking when he's three. So when we see a child who's not really imitating the actions that we talked about back in level one, or and especially these kinds of gestures, we know that he's going to be a late talker. We know even at 18 months, if the words aren't coming and there are no gestures, that's a big, big red flag. Gestures always precede uh, spoken words in language development. And sometimes uh, a therapist or a parent, really a parent, will come and try to say, well, you know, my child was, my child's seven now, and he didn't really learn how to wave bye-bye or point or anything like that until, until after he started talking. And I have to really question that. I have to really think about that and wonder if there was some echolalia going on, if there were some other things. Because, I mean, when we look at this hierarchy of development, we all, always, always see those gestures come in first. So it's such a predictor. And beyond that, it's a first step in communicating. You know when a child's waving to you what he means, right? You know he's telling you, uh, check you later, bye-bye, I'm out of here. You know when he's blowing kisses that that's a sign of affection. You certainly know with more functional gestures like shaking his head yes or no that he's completely communicating with you. And so when we get a child to the point that they can imitate some simple big body movements, we can easily move those toward gestures and shape those and start to get some of those early true uh, communicative functions going so that's where we are with level two we want to see that now once a kid can do some gestures like waving like clapping blowing kisses shaking his head then we think about pointing now pointing is super effective for children who can't talk yet but a lot of late talkers don't point. Now we've talked about uh, kids who had other red flags and generally when we don't see gestures coming in, we, we also know that, uh, that there's a more significant delay or more significant risk for a child not only talking later, but being uh, having other red flags for a, a larger or a bigger developmental problem. So you really, really wanna watch for that and you really wanna get these kinds of things going. Let me also mention something that I didn't say with level one, with actions, with the objects. I'm finishing up a new uh, therapy manual specifically geared toward treating children or toddlers with red flags for autism. 
And one of the things, one of the pieces of research that I, I read about you know, in the wee hours of the morning this morning was when a child's play skills, even when they get a diagnosis like autism, when a child's play skills are better at the beginning, at the whole beginning of this therapy process, it's such, again, a good predictor of how his later play skills will develop and how his language skills will develop. So even back in level one, when we are looking at how a child plays and how he imitates us with, with objects, that's again foretelling how serious is this issue. And as a therapist, how quickly can you move a child through this process? Or as a parent, if it takes you weeks and weeks and weeks or months to get a child to imitate some actions and to imitate some gestures or some big body movements, we know that that child, again, is at risk for a chronic language delay. So we really have to get on these issues at the beginning. And again, this is where you start. You don't, you don't let any more time go by. If you're a parent, I, you know, I want to say, hey, turn that, turn that screen off and get busy. <laughs> you should probably watch the rest of the show, but that's how serious it is. And that's how important this is. And that's how predictive these things are. And this is where you start. It's not just, you know, the blind leading the blind here, and I, I hope that expression is not offensive to you, but I have seen this work over and over and over again. When we start with the foundational pieces, it really is easier to kind of move through and then get to where we all want, which is helping a child uh, become more verbal. All right, so we did level one, actions with the objects, and then we moved to level two, communicative gestures, but we started that with big body actions and then worked through those other gestures. Then we're ready. Then and only then, once a child is already doing some gestures, we're ready to move toward teaching uh, hand motions and songs or even some simple sign language. Now, sign language kind of goes in and out of uh, approval <laughs> with speech language pathologists. When I started, it was out. We weren't really signing with children. And then it became in again. It was kind of a fad with baby signs and everybody was doing it. And then it sort of lost favor again, especially with our research with as particularly children with autism or red flags for autism, they were not learning signs as effectively. And so instead of saying, hey, signs aren't gonna be great for that specific population, some of us just, or some of, I don't wanna say us because I've never quit signing, but some professionals kind of did away with the signs. I wanna to talk to you about why I think signs are still a fantastic strategy for children who are late talkers, especially for those children who do not have red flags for autism. When we teach children signs for words like more, like cookie, like milk, they are learning that they have to do something to get something and they have a symbol that represents a specific message. That's what words are. Words are symbols too. So can we, when we can help a child become symbolic by using a sign when he's not developmentally ready to talk, we go a long, 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 long way toward one, improving his functional ability to communicate with his parents, and two, to reduce his frustration, and then three, to improve his ability to motor plan. So what do I mean by that? I mean to use his little body very purposefully to communicate a specific message that you understand. And that, again, is what language is too. That's what speech is. We move our mouths in a really specific way to form specific sounds, which we all recognize as an intelligent word and so when we have when we can teach kids how to do this with signs hey we're halfway there we've just got to add the voice part which again for some kids is the real problem but when we get that little system uh, revved up and more finely tuned uh, signing can do that because it helps their bodies become more coordinated and again those those three big reasons that I gave you they can communicate with parents they become more symbolic and then we reduce their frustration those are the main reasons that I still advocate teaching some simple signs to children to kind of jumpstart expressive language and we'll talk more about that I hope to do a show in the next couple of weeks about the signs that I start with so especially if you're a parent if you don't have access to that kind of information uh, look for that in, in a couple of weeks because I, I want to get that going and teach you how to do that as well okay so that's level two now we're ready to move up to level three and this is kind of a controversial level because here what we're doing we taught a child kind of how to imitate out here with actions with objects and then we kind of made it more specific with uh, gross motor actions with your body and now we've, we've kind of moved up to that mouth 
And we're going to teach a child how to imitate nonverbal actions with his face and mouth. So even things like widening your eyes, like I was talking about with my sweet little uh, friends who were twins that are, uh, gosh, they were born in March. So what does that make them? April, May, June, July, Four, uh, August, almost five months old or five months old. And so, you know, they were certainly doing that. And so anything like uh, smiling, uh, widening your eyes, like I already said, raising your eyebrows, puffing out your cheeks, puckering your lips, smacking your lips, anything like that to get that awareness going that I can copy what I see your face and then your mouth do. Now, here's the controversy with that. There's not a great link between a child learning how to do nonverbal movements with his mouth and talking because they're too, even though it's the same system, it's a different process. So I don't want you to think that this is absolutely necessary. Lots For lots of children, we completely omit this step. For some children, it's harder for them to do this, especially kids with motor planning uh, difficulties. It's harder for them to do this actually than even imitate vocally. So for, this is not absolutely necessary, but for some late talkers it is because guys, I, and if you're a therapist, you've probably seen this, you have little friends that do not even know they have a mouth. <laughs> and so when we are doing this, that there there's an increase in awareness there. And again, it's just a higher level of imitation. And so I want you to think about that. You can totally do this with little tools too, like horns or whistles. Uh, even things like blowing cotton balls or pinwheels. And a lot of therapists really advocate for these kinds of things, particularly when there's weakness in the uh, child's oral system, meaning that he's got uh, hypotonia. So he's got decreased muscle tone throughout his little body. And if he's had difficulty attaining gross motor milestones uh, with, with uh, his legs and his arms, you know, he was, he was late to roll over, he was late to creep and crawl, he was late to walk, he's still not very coordinated. Chances are that those same issues also affect the musculature that's necessary for speech. And so if he has decreased core strength, he's not going to be able to push that air up over his air folds and maybe even consistently get a voice. Or he, he might, when he does start to vocalize, it sounds sluggish or weaker somehow, even with his volume there. So we know that those, those issues are the result of lower muscle tone. And so some therapists really, 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 especially for those kids with neurological issues and when they're so obvious like that, really advocate lots of oral motor work. Now I don't do a ton of that with toddlers, because it's hard, <laughs> but it's certainly when we need to go there, when we know that a child has a diagnosis that necessitates that kind of work, we totally do that. And we certainly pair with our colleagues who are physical therapists and occupational therapists to get in a child's entire body, uh, just, just, using his, uh, just using his muscles in a way that's just the most coordinated that, that his whole system can accomplish. So for some kids, we really look at level three with imitating those nonverbal actions with your face and mouth, but for some kids, we jump straight to level four, which would be imitating vocalizations in play. Now, this level is so fun because now we're getting things like uh, fake coughing. <coughs> Do you remember a, a therapist when you work with, or your own children, or when you work with typically developing children or parents, if you have another child who's not struggling, or maybe even your late talker did this on time. But around that six to nine month level, children love to start to do that fake cough or even just a little vocalization and ah, where they start that little imitation game and you get that nice reciprocity or turn taking going. So anything like that here. So it could be something like panting like a dog. It could be that, you know, when you take a drink, which I need right now, that nice audible inhalation that you do. So any little sound, even a sound like a yawn, oh, you know, it's kind of hard to do a fake yawn, but you know what I mean? You are vocalizing with your mouth. So you have moved up this imitation continuum. You started out here with these actions with objects, then you brought it into your body, and then you moved up to nonverbal actions with your face and your mouth. And now we're at the level where we add some sound. So even things like snorting like a pig or snoring, pretending that you're snoring, uh, things like growling, little sound effects like shh, 
for being quiet. That's what we mean here. We want kids really imitating those. And then once they get there, or let me say another one, another good one here is blowing raspberries. So that kind of raspberry, you could voice it or even move it further back in your mouth. Uh, a lot of people can, uh, you know, do a great raspberry with their tongue between their teeth. I can't do that, which by the way, one of my, my professors in grad school said I would never make it in this career because I couldn't do that. Woo, thank goodness she was wrong. <laughs> but blowing raspberries like that, those little things, again, are what we've pulled from typical development with infants and babies. This is how this whole imitation process works. This is how it's designed to work so that kids do these kinds of things first. So once they've done vocalizations and play like that, now they're ready for exclamatory words. So this is where we add things that sound more and more like speech. So this might be something like mmm, mmm, mmm as you're eating a snack or ouch as they hurt themselves or a really fun celebratory sound like yay or woohoo any little exclamatory word that you would say in excitement as you're playing or just expressively you could say something like oh man you know that's an exclamatory word that that indicates disappointment or displeasure or disapproval something like that so any little word like wee as you're swinging or something like wow those are exclamatory words and why did these words work to help children learn how to imitate it's because they're easier and because they're novel and because they're fun and kids like that they think it's it's uh, pretty cool and that's why lots of toddlers their very first things even typically developing toddlers right around their first birthday when even if they're not saying a lot of real words yet they may have a lot of sounds like this or animal sounds sometimes as a therapist you may evaluate a child and you ask mom does he have any words and she says well no he's not really saying much of anything and then you start therapy with him and three or four weeks later you've taken some animals in some little farm animals in as a little activity for him to play or he he might already have that in his home and you're playing that and he just says all kinds of animal sounds for you he barks like a dog and he has a quack like a duck and he might uh, say moo like a cow or try to meow and you get so excited and you say to your mom mom did you hear all these animal sounds that I taught him today that he learned today in therapy and you are just before you can even quit patting yourself on the back mom says hey he already knew how to do that but what happened mom didn't count those as words she didn't recognize the importance of those early exclamatory words. And here's what I tell parents. If I can spell it, I count that as a word. Even when I can't spell it, I'm giving a kid credit. And why is that? Because the same kinds of sounds or phonemes that the child is using to produce those little play sounds or animal sounds or even something like a car noise, rim, rim, those same kinds of sounds are what we also use to make up words. So it's a really important in-between step for so many toddlers. And so we that's where we need to start. And I'll just tell you the truth. As I have done this job longer and longer, when there are no other developmental red flags, for a child, meaning, and I'm gonna say it again, he's connected with me socially, his play skills are good, which gives me a good indication with how he's moving along cognitively, and he understands language, and I know that because he follows directions. When I get a kid who's got all that coming together, this is where I start. I start with these, oh, and let me say one more thing, he's already using gestures. If he's not using gestures, we have to start there. But when I have a child who's coming to me and all those other little foundational pieces are in place, I think, well, here we are. Here we are at level four and level five. Let's go. And so that's what we do. We start here for so many kids. And it's so fun to design therapy activities like this because you naturally hold the child's attention. But the kicker is for you as the adult to learn to use this really effectively is you've got to model fewer words during this kind of play, real words, and just stick to sounds. Now, dads are generally really great with this, and siblings, because they're making all these kind of sound effects when they play anyway. But as a mom and as a therapist who's in that mom age range or grandma, <laughs> you may have to really watch yourself 
and tell yourself like I do, you know, talk less and be noisy more. So when you're playing with cars and trucks, instead of always saying, look at the car, go, push the car, let's go. Instead of saying so many words, try those little sound effects. Try like a, you know, for the, the brakes on the car. Try beep, beep for the horn. Try, you know, boom or crash. Those kinds of words like that, because so many times toddlers will begin to imitate at this level, one, because it's fun, and two, because it's easier. Saying words like this, if we really analyze the phonetic complexity of exclamatory words, so much easier than some of the words that we're trying to get our kids to say. So think about that. Think about how you can include uh-oh. Think about how you can include, you know, something like pow, pow, pow as you're playing with a kid. And I'll just tell you, I taught this course, this whole building verbal imitation in toddlers or steps to building verbal imitation in toddlers. I taught it live for a lot of years and then we put it on DVD. Guys, it is, I get an email almost every day from a therapist or from a parent who's bought the therapy manual saying, I cannot believe how well this works. I cannot believe that when I changed my focus and stopped trying to get real words, and I went here with play sounds and exclamatory words, he is really, really starting to imitate. And finally, finally, I feel some relief that we are getting somewhere. So let me encourage you to really, really take a look at those levels. All right, the next thing, and let me just let me just take a little pause and see how we're doing with time here. The next thing that we want to do is look at teaching automatic speech in verbal routines. Now this this is where we really bump a kid up because now we're using some real words but they're still highly dependent on context. So what, what is automatic speech? What is a verbal routine? Well, these are things that a child has learned to say and do, which are, again, dependent on what's going on around him. So things like counting, so saying one, two, and then a child would fill in three, or something like ready, set, Go! It's we teach these things and we say these things over and over and over and we train <laughs> a child to know that word. And even if he's not saying it yet, if we put that in place and we are so consistent with saying the same words at the same times for the same events, children do begin to try to fill in that word and try to try to pop that out even sometimes before they're even aware of it i mean i can't tell you again the number of times that i've said to a kid ready set and he's just popped out go and sometimes he is more surprised than i am it's kind of like where did that come from and of course they can't articulate that and they can't say that but it's just kind of the sense that you get uh, I had a little girl on video years ago, and it's in my Steps to Building Verbal Imitation course where we are playing with potato heads, and we have really been setting up the verbal routines and really, really trying to move her toward functional words, and I just kept saying the same words over and over and over, and I had my uh, daughter then with us there for that session and uh, she is about to she's beginning her second year of grad school to be a speech language pathologist and she was there with us and she just kept saying teeth teeth get her teeth I see the teeth and she really made it like a carrier phrase with a verbal routine and you know what that little girl said it and it just again I, 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 I love that we captured it on video but it's I've had that happen hundreds and hundreds of times where we do the work as adults. We set up these verbal routines and then a child is able to do it. They're able to fill it in. And so here's another nice thing that you can do at this level is you can take little games that you've been playing with your child forever and make them a verbal routine. So you can do things that you're working on like peekaboo so that you've been playing this game with your child again. You know, where's mommy? Where's mommy? Boo! And so after you've played that a lot, and you may have played it already now for two years <laughs> because your child is over two and is still not talking, start to do what we call an expectant wait with these verbal routines. So start to, you know, again, where's mommy? Where's mommy? <gasps> and so you pause, you're looking, you're leaning forward, you make your whole body appear like it's your turn to talk. 
And that pause there is so effective to help children begin to fill in that verbal routine. Even with something like a song like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little, and you're waiting for that child to fill in that word. So super, super effective way to get that automatic speech going in verbal routines. So now that's all the way through level six. So let's kind of catch up to where we are. First, we started actions with objects. And then we did uh, gross motor actions that, that morphed into communicative gestures. That was level two. Then we did level three, which may or may not be necessary, nonverbal actions with your face and mouth. Then we started getting really fun and moved into vocalizations in play and level five with exclamatory words, which include all those cool, fun words that we talked about, like we and uh-oh and yay, even things like animal sounds and vehicle noises. Then we moved to real words, but only dependent in uh, context-dependent routines, like counting and like saying things like ready, set, go, filling in a word for a song, filling in a word on a game. That's level six. Now, finally here, at level seven, are we ready to start to talk about imitating functional words? And I'll just tell you, if you have really worked a child up to this point, and if there's nothing going on like a specific motor planning disorder or another speech kind of delay, if this has just been a language problem, kids really transition nicely into this next level of imitating more functional words. And why is that? Because you have stuck to the sequence of development and you have moved them up to this level so that they're now ready to imitate some functional words for you. Here's the kicker. <laughs> Sometimes there are those other issues going on there and so when we see that difficulty still there, we may still have to pull in some other general techniques but we can also do things like select our vocabulary really, really carefully so that we have a pretty good idea of what words are meaningful for a child and what words are super functional. And as speech language pathologist, speech language pathologist, we also can do a good job of analyzing what our target words should be based on an existing or an established uh, core set of sounds that a child already uses. So we might do something like look at the uh, sounds that he uses in words like yay or pow or wow. We would say, well, he's got a P in pow and he's got a W in wow and he has a B for boo. So let me be smart about this as I come up with some, some early targets. And so we carefully choose our first uh, goals, our target words there, based on what a child can already do. And so why would we go to that trouble? Because kids really do have to learn to say every sound and every word. I mean, they really do. But you want to do everything you can with a late-talking toddler to ensure success, especially if you're a therapist. And why is that? Because you already know the theory. You've got to apply this. And so as a parent, it's a little harder, but you can still do that. You can still make a case for doing that and for uh, analyzing what a kid can do and for predicting. Now, everything is not that this cut and dry, and I don't want to pretend like it is. I don't want to give you any kind of, uh, in any kind of, mislead you in any way that sometimes it still is hard at this level but if you have done a good job of sticking to this continuum and if you have really worked a child up to this point and you have been pretty faithful to following this hierarchy and making sure that you fill in these gaps it really is easier to kind of get this going when there's just been a language delay now again if there's been a matter planning issue if there's a severe phonological disorder all the things that we talked about in the last podcast series with uh, speech intelligibility and toddlers if you have a kid who's still struggling there go back and listen to some of those shows because that'll really help give you an idea of what's going on and give you some an idea too of some different target words that you could get but if you were strictly looking at a child from a language perspective, this is when he's ready. So you get words that are really, really meaningful for him, and words meaning that he, he knows, he understands the word, and then he has to use it. He needs to say that word. And let me say too, if you've had a child who's a signer, or even if you've had a child who's used a picture for something that he's already used to communicating that message, those are great early target words too because you've already he already has the context. And so think about that. Think about designing 
your uh, treatment plans to really, really use all that theory that you know and really, really uh, perfect the the hierarchy and the strategies that you use there so that you're, you're running a science-based practice where everything that you're doing is not just you pulling it uh, out of thin air, which is what sometimes parents think, and so that we are really, really using our strategies there. Now, once we've gotten the kid to imitate some functional words, we also need them to be able to do some phrases. And a lot of times, kids will have a lot of difficulty moving to phrases. And so we have to really also consider that teaching imitation at the phrase level is still sometimes really, really necessary for some children to uh, bump up from the single word level to phrases. And honestly, that's when parents really, really feel like that a child is finally talking. It's when he starts to combine some words. And so what do we do there? What are some tips we can use? Well, we still use our imitation strategies. We still use that expectant waiting. We still use careful vocabulary selection. So what does that mean? That means you're going to pair words that you think he can already say. And beyond that, <clears throat> excuse me. You'll pick words that he already uses all the time that you know we're not going to try to always get a new word in the context of a phrase. New words should always be worked in as single words. And then we look at these combinations and get them, um, get them going. So if a child says bye-bye plus a handful of people's names, you know, that's a great early target. If a child already uses a word like more to request and he already has a lot of nouns, we uh, know that we can pair more with a favorite noun and get a phrase. Sometimes we get to this point and we think a kid's ready for phrases and guess what, he's not. And you know why he's not? Because he doesn't have a big enough word bank. He doesn't have enough words to combine. And so you start looking and you think, well, this kid, you know, we, we start to combine phrases when kids have an existing spoken vocabulary of 35 to 50 words. But we can't um, really help a kid move to phrases when all his words are the same kind of words. So when he has 50, 60, 75 nouns, but no other kinds of words, what, uh, what should we do there? So we should teach him some more words. We should build his vocabulary so that he is, has enough words, enough word choices uh, to combine there. So that's another problem that sometimes we have to encounter. We realize that we've got to teach some more words there. Another really helpful strategy at this phase for teaching imitation is getting kids to imitate some holistic phrases. And these aren't really phrases yet. They're phrases that kids learn as one whole word. So things like, I got it, I did it, no way, come on, see ya. Those kinds of things are kind of an, uh, a bridge. So if you have a kid who's having a real hard time moving, from single words to phrases, a lot of times those holistic phrases are the way to go there. Another effective strategy that I already mentioned back with verbal routines was using a carrier phrase. And we can also implement that strategy here as well. So teaching a child to say uh, words that he, he only has to learn one additional word. So it's kind of the anchor, the anchor of that phrase. So he, he learns things like I want something or more something please or I see or I like those kinds of carrier phrases can be really really effective too so that's how we move a nonverbal kid from not talking at all not imitating at all to short phrases is it easy thankfully sometimes yes <laughs> but it's always easier when we stick to this continuum and when we do what we know and this this approach is rooted in science it's rooted in how uh, typical language development uh, uh, evolves in a child and so we always again want to make sure that the techniques that we're recommending to parents uh, stay firmly rooted in, um, in these science-based approaches. Okay, so those were our eight levels here. Let me talk specifically about another from a great course that's on video or on DVD that you can get early speech language development taking theory to the floor. It's actually a 12 hour continuing education course so you can almost get all your hours in one uh, pop there. And so let's talk about some of these strategies because these are super effective as well. And here the kicker is our sequence. So it's making sure that we use these strategies in the order in which they're intended. But I'm going to 
I'm going to talk to you about modeling, using choices, and uh, withholding and sabotage. Because as therapists, we say these words to parents and we use these strategies a lot, but again, sometimes we get a little bit carried away and we don't think about what's required to make these strategies effective. So I want to talk about what, what, how you should be using these things and more importantly, how you should be teaching these kinds of things to parents. So what is modeling? Modeling is just saying what you want the child to say. So we've already talked a lot about imitation today, that copying piece, that repeating piece. So with modeling, what we're essentially doing is providing a model, providing what the child should say. And at, when children are super, super quiet, remember, modeling's about all we have beyond teaching those earlier levels of education. You can't really make a talk. I mean, we can do approaches like prompt, and we can do things that really try to manipulate that articulatory system. But when it comes down to it, kids have to be able to produce those sounds and produce that, that um, before we can ever get there. And so modeling is a super, super effective way. And you know, we really have to teach parents again to model appropriate vocalizations. And at, and we already talked about at that appropriate developmental level, back through this whole hierarchy of education, we've already talked about why that's important get parents modeling at the developmental level that a kid can be at or that the kid is currently functioning in because if they don't again our expectations are unrealistic and so anytime that we are using modeling and we and that's our that's our big expressive language strategy there with teaching imitation We've got to make sure that we do everything to set the stage. We've already talked about expectant waiting, and a big component of this also is heightened affect. Now, I'm a pretty naturally heightened affect kind of person. <laughs> pretty smiley, pretty expressive, even, not always smiley. Even when I'm upset, boy, you know it, because you're looking at my face. You know, when I'm tired, I tend to look tired and kind of grumpy too. But those kinds of extras, the body language, the facial expressions really, really do contribute to the effectiveness of modeling. And why is that? Because the child is able then to read your nonverbal cues as well as the verbal cues or the vocal cues that you're giving him. So that's certainly something that we need to keep in mind when we're modeling. I always tell parents, always, and I write it in every therapy manual that I uh, work on, that I publish, I say, you know, you've really, really, really got to think about how you look and what you do and how you present these strategies or how you present this language because it is so much easier to change you than it ever will be to change a child. And so we have to start with fixing ourselves and tweaking the things that we do. And again, heightened affect and that anticipatory body language so helpful in facilitating imitations. So really perfect your tell me face. Now I wish that that was my original, I wish I had coined that phrase, but I didn't. It's from uh, a speech pathologist named Kim Rowe, and I, I'm not even sure she still has her blog anymore, but I wanna give her credit for that, because that is exactly what this is, is a tell me face. And so using that kind of fun, uh, amped up approach so so effective and I always say start with that start with that really play-based approach with with really really thinking about how can I set this up so a child will be more likely to imitate another really effective strategy for modeling is a sing-song voice or motherese now we southerners talk like this all the time <laughs> but some of you may have to try a little harder so instead of saying cookie you want a cookie tell mama cookie cookie it's a lot more effective especially for late talkers and especially for children who are experiencing developmental delays they're still you know further back in that developmental continuum changing how you say the word modeling cookie in that real drawn-out sing-songy melodic voice does have a real positive effect on how likely a toddler is to try to imitate you. So think about that and think about how you can implement that. And again, that comes more easily to some of us than others. If you're naturally kind of the teacher type, the preschool kindergarten teacher type, 
or um, really into baby talk with your child, that's going to be a lot easier for you. Some adults really resist that and will say, you know, I don't want to sound like that or I don't want my, child, my child to sound like that. And then their child says nothing and they decide, gosh, this is, I need to change my approach here. And then they realize how effective it is. So if that's been your position before, really, really rethink that because there's lots of good research to support mother ease and using that, or parent ease, using that sing-song melodic quality. So modeling, super, super effective. It is what we use at the beginning when we don't have anything else because, again, you can't really make a kid talk. But when we use modeling, you have to really accept any kind of approximation or vocalization you get in those early attempts, and you have to celebrate And so any, any, anything the child uh, gives you at this point, you go ahead and praise him. And again, don't go for 100% articulatory perfection here. Because with late talkers, we know that with all toddlers, even with typically developing toddlers, we know that they're going to use simplifications and modifications and compensations as they learn how to talk. I mean, that's just part of it. Um, so really, really take that into consideration. Don't go for perfection here. You want anything that a child can give you. Okay, the next, once a child is really, really when we are, even before phrases, here in that hierarchy of imitation, we start to get choices. And what are choices? That's where you say to a kid, do you want juice or milk? Do you want a cookie or a cracker? Which cup do you want? Blue or red? Uh, do, you want, do you want to read uh, about cars or moon? So any kind of little choice is fantastic when he can imitate pretty well. And I'll just tell you, when I get a kid up to the point that he's using, gosh, 10 to 15 words consistently with me in a session, boy, I start the choices. Because that significantly increases the frequency we have children that we are really, really working on imitation, and especially when that has been so difficult for them. If we are saying to them, I have the ball, you have to say ball before you get it, tell me ball. That feels a little forced to them, but when we change it to a choice and we say, do you want the bubbles or the ball? They are so much more likely to imitate. So implement those choices, but really, really wait on that verbal response. And again, you can really perfect your delivery so that a child is more likely to um, try to imitate in that context, even when it's been a little harder in another kind of context. All right, so let's move on and finish up here with withholding and sabotage. Now, there are two different things, but we kind of think about those interchangeably. Withholding is what I just gave you an example of with the ball. When I say, um, I, have, I have your cup, here's your cup, you have to say cup. You're not going to get your cup until you say cup. I don't care how much you cry and roll around on the floor. Whatever you go into, that's withholding. And let me just say, sometimes it's mean. It's a little unfair. And we can't really use withholding with the child until he's already a pretty good imitator, until we, we know that he already has a pretty decent shot at saying that. And I'll just tell you, lots of really renowned approaches hold out for these words and really I think unfairly place an expectation on parents and on children that if they just wait long enough the kid will eventually say it and my uh, 25 26 year career that's not always true sometimes you can wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and a child still can't say it and so we can't jump straight to withholding some children it may work for, but for the most part, we've got to work them up to this point. They've got to be imitating or have imitated similar words in less demanding context before we get there. Now, motivation is really, really important, and I understand why people think withholding is so effective, and when a child really, really wants something, certainly withholding is a strategy that you can use. But guys, again, do it with a twinkle in your eye and love in your heart. <laughs> So that you are not being 
uh, mean and overly demanding with a child who's already struggling to communicate. So use withholding um, correctly. When you, we use it incorrectly, it is a communication killer, and we will promote more uh, tantrums and full-on meltdowns from children than we need to because we are using that technique well before we should. We should have stuck to modeling and then working kids up to that developmental readiness level of being able to imitate words at the single word level. The other thing that we do, uh, the other um, thing that we do with, with withholding that makes it so successful is that we just withhold three, or, three to five times is the guideline on that. And that is based on a National Institutes of Health study way back in the 90s. I have never gotten the official reference for that. So if you stumble upon that, please email that to me. But that three to five times really, really kind of is a magic number so that you would say, you would prompt that word or withhold that or give that cue three to five times. And if the kid doesn't do it, what do you do? I give the object anyway because I want the child with me and I want him staying with me and being pleasantly cooperative with me. And I just feel like if he doesn't do that, you know, what good is it if I ask him 35 more times? So I like that three to five guideline for withholding. And I, I hope that that's effective for you. And again, that's something that parents write me about all the time and say, you know, my child's therapist really in therapy, you know, she's really hard-nosed. She won't give him anything, and we just spend the whole time with him crying and miserable, and I use your three to five time a guideline at work, at home, and it works for me. So that's certainly a trick that I hope that I can share with you, and it's, uh, it's not a trick, it's a strategy, it's a technique, and it, it, again, it is rooted in science with using that uh, three to five time guideline. The last um, strategy that we want to discuss is sabotage. So what is sabotage? Sabotage means that you set up a situation where you are holding back or withholding a necessary piece of an activity that a child wants and needs to complete it. So if you are sabotaging a drawing activity, and we, we can call it something nicer, you can call it communicative temptations, <laughs> that's a lot nicer. So let's say that your child really wants to draw and you give him a pad of paper, but you do not give him the markers. He needs the markers, you've sabotaged that. He has a reason to ask you for the markers. He wants to go outside and play and you put one sock and one shoe on him, but you do not put that sock and shoe on the other foot. What have you done? You have tempted him to ask you for his sock and his shoe so that he can go outside. We do this too when a kid wants uh, something to drink and we give them an empty cup and they have to ask us for the liquid that goes inside. We put them in empty bathtubs with no toys and no water and say, it's time for bath, and just act like we're the stupidest people in the world. <laughs> but that sets up an opportunity for a child to request and use words. And again, it's not effective if he's never said the word. If, you, if you've never heard him say water, don't expect that he's going to use that during a sabotage um, situation. We only use sabotage to increase initiation, meaning that the child has already imitated the word, you've already modeled it, you've gotten it fairly consistently in that, that direct imitation. And then to make that word spontaneous and to make him initiate or use that word on his own, that's when we use sabotage. So when we think about these techniques, modeling comes first, then choices, then withholding and still giving it at that three to five times. And then we don't get really hardcore <laughs> until we get to the sabotage level. And at sabotage, you're not even really saying the word. You're not providing the verbal model there. You're just waiting and waiting until a child produces that word on his own. But if you follow these guidelines, you've gotten him ready. And more likely than not, if you, again, are, are really thinking about this, uh, you're, you know whether a child can say that or not. And so you are in significantly, exponentially increasing uh, your opportunities for success there. So I hope that you've learned some new strategies or that I've helped you as therapists uh, refine your own script as you are teaching parents these kinds of techniques to jumpstart expressive language in toddlers. Let me mention the resources that I used for this show. You can get them all at teachmetotalk.com. Uh, my website there, the first one is Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. It's a therapy manual. So practical and perfect to walk you through those eight levels of imitation with uh, fantastic uh, ideas for activities, word list, all the little ideas that I gave you as we went through the um, course here. 
the video or podcast were included here in Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers. If you want to step that up a little bit and get uh, more continuing education credit, you can get one hour for this course. Excuse me, but you can get six hours with Steps to Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers, my full-length uh, CEU course on DVD. You can get that and then do that in the convenience of your home, and that is such a cost-effective way to get CEUs, especially when you go in with a colleague and you both uh, get the course. You can uh, really, really get more bang for your buck there. And then some of this information, especially this last part, is from my 12-hour uh, CE course for therapists, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor. And this is really walking you through that whole hierarchy of development with children, looking at their social skills, their cognitive and receptive skills, and then on through expressive language and even some articulation. All right. So uh, check those resources out at teachmetotalk.com. If you are watching on YouTube, you can get the link uh, for those resources right there below in the post. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and that's all for today from Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Bye.